how something begins is always significant. Uh, we know that when it comes to watching a movie, we might switch it off uh, if the beginning puts us off. Uh, we might not choose to persevere with a TV series if we're not interested by the pilot episode. Uh, there might be several books on our bookcases with a bookmark fairly near the start because what we read early on didn't draw us in. Uh, beginnings are significant. Beginnings are significant for Luke when he was writing and compiling his gospel. Uh, he wants us to take note of the early years in the life of Jesus, who his parents were, who his mother was, how his birth came about. Uh, he includes a genealogy, a family tree, tracing Jesus' descendants right back to Adam. Uh, even Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that Luke records for us in chapter 4. Uh, Bible commentators have for a long time noted that Luke is purposefully comparing Jesus with Adam, as if to say, here is a new beginning. Adam was tempted uh, and sinned. But Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and remained sinless. And so here is a new Adam, a second Adam. And with him, God is beginning something new. So beginnings are significant for Luke. And in our passage that, uh, that Nathaniel's just read for us, chapter 5, uh, Luke wants us to see the beginning of mission. That is the beginning of mission for God's people. Now that Jesus has come, and just as the pilot episode of a TV series or the, the first chapter of a novel introduces us to the key characters and themes that we're to expect, this passage introduces us to some key features that we need to understand if we're going to understand mission rightly. So I want us to look at three things this evening. Mission, what it is, how we do it and why it's possible, what it is, how we do it, why it's possible. So first of all, what it is. This passage is all about mission because it's all about the commissioning of Simon Peter and James and John as well, but mainly Simon Peter. And it's their commissioning to be fishers of men. Uh, it's a straightforward passage for us to follow. Jesus has begun to teach in synagogues and in various other places, and he started to draw quite a crowd of people who are eager to hear him. Uh, when he's down near this lake, the Lake of Gennesaret, the crowd were a little bit too eager. And so he gets into one of Simon's boats, presumably so that uh, he can teach a little bit more effectively, so that more people can spread out on the shore and hear him better. Uh, and when he finishes teaching, he asks Simon to sail out into deeper water and to let the fishing nets down. Simon explains that they've been fishing all night, which would have been the best time for fishing in deeper water. And yet they had caught nothing. But he takes Jesus at his word and he lets the nets down and he and his business partners take in this huge number of fish. Uh, Simon Peter responds by falling at Jesus' feet and asking him to leave. But Jesus responds by saying to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And the episode ends with them bringing the boats back in, leaving and following Jesus. It's an incredible event. But the focal point isn't this great miraculous catch of fish that Jesus orchestrates. 
instead of the focal point, the main event in this episode that Luke records for us is when Jesus says to Simon Peter, from now on, you will be catching men or people. Uh, Bible commentators point out that this passage resembles passages in the Old Testament when God commissions people for certain tasks. And so the pattern in these events is that God reveals himself to a person. The person is afraid or fearful, and then God sends them out. Uh, He commissions them. And so in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses hides his face because he was afraid. And the Lord then sends Moses to Pharaoh to go and bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne with his glory filling the temple. And Isaiah responds to this by saying, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the Lord then sends Isaiah out as a prophet to his people. And then we come to Luke 5 and Jesus here in this passage reveals something of who he is to Peter in this miraculous catch. And Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And how does Jesus respond? He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. He commissions him. He sends him out. And so here is Simon Peter's commission. He is to be a catcher of people. But what does that mean? Well, in trying to understand what it means, we need to be careful not to push the analogy here too far. Um, I don't know whether you, you probably have. You've probably all seen the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, you know, the Roald Dahl film and uh, Dick Van Dyke starred in it. And uh, there's a character in the film called the Child Catcher. And, uh, and he would go around with his net and he would try and capture children in his net and take them away. Um, uh, my parents used to put this film on for me and my sisters when we were growing up. It's a strange film for parents to put on for their children when you think of it in these terms. Many a children will have had nightmare about the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, but if we push the analogy here in Luke 5 too far, we might start to think of Peter's commissioning uh, in slightly sinister terms. A little bit like this child catcher. After all, aren't fish taken against their will? Isn't the outlook for fish something of a bleak outlook once they are caught? But to interpret it that way would be to make the mistake of pushing the analogy too far. Jesus here is simply yet memorably drawing a link between Simon Peter's now former occupation. He was in the fishing business and his new role that Jesus sends him out with. He used to catch fish and now he will catch people. He once gathered in fish. Now he will gather people into God's kingdom. In fact, the words used here for catching, uh, it means to catch alive or to let live. It's a word that carries this sense of rescue to it. Daryl Bock, who's an expert in in Luke's gospel, really writes that God is in the business of saving humanity and some will help him in the catch. Uh, That's what's going on here. What is this mission 
Well, it's a rescue mission. And I wanted to note just two things about the nature of this mission. Firstly, this mission has a particular and a unique focus for Simon Peter and the other apostles. Uh, Simon Peter and the other apostles were commissioned to be fishers of men in a way that you and I are not. How so? Well, Simon Peter and the other apostles are called by Jesus to become the foundation of his church. Uh, Matthew tells us in his gospel account that Jesus would later say to Simon Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. It's the witness and the teaching of the apostles that becomes the, con the content of the founding documents of the church. Uh, so that in Luke's second volume, in the book of Acts, in the Acts of the Apostles, he tells us very quickly that the earliest Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so there is a sense in which these words, this commission to go and catch people, apply directly and uniquely to Peter and the other apostles before they apply to us today. And how would Simon Peter and the apostles go about this new commission of theirs? How would they, empowered by the Holy Spirit, be Jesus' witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Well, it wouldn't be by primarily going themselves and each individually preaching the gospel in all these different places. They were only 12 men. Uh, they would fulfill this commission to catch people, to rescue people by serving as Christ's appointed founders of the church. Now, that's important for us to realise because without realising it, we can quite easily read these words and we can think to ourselves, OK, if mission is gathering people into God's kingdom, then that's what I need to go and do. And when we think like that, we can start to act as though every Christian is called first and foremost to be an evangelist. And that what's most important in our individual lives is that we each individually go and share the gospel with people and seek to gather them into God's kingdom on our own. And when we start to think like that, we get all sorts of things distorted in the Christian life. You know, we can start to undervalue the importance of our work if our work takes place outside of the church. We can undervalue the importance of the quality of our work, of the integrity with which we work because we start to make the only measure against which we judge whether we are honouring God or not in the way that we do our jobs. The only measure we use is how many people we've shared the gospel with, how many people we've told Jesus about. And so we read verses like this one at the end of the passage we're looking at today, and we see that Peter, James and John left everything and they followed Jesus. And we think, well, that's what I need to do. I need to downgrade everything else, leave everything and focus solely on sharing the gospel with people. And we, well, we, we find it easy to gloss over the fact that when John the Baptist uh, was preaching back in Luke 3 and the crowds asked him in verse 10, what then shall we do? His response wasn't to say, go and be mini John the Baptists in your workplaces, in your communities. 
But he responded by saying, be generous and compassionate towards those around you. And to the tax collectors and the soldiers, he said, work with integrity and honesty. You see. And the apostles, they don't take Jesus' commission here as a commission to go off and be individual evangelists. And the rest of the New Testament, we don't find them off on their own trying to gather people into the kingdom through their own personal endeavours. Instead, we see them building up the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, throughout the world. They were concerned for the church. They wrote letters to edify the church. They were careful to appoint elders and overseers in the church throughout the land so that the church might be healthy and continue to grow. Now, we might look at that pattern of the apostles' behaviour then and we might say, well, Simon Peter, all you apostles, you've forgotten Christ's commission. You've forgotten that he called you to go and be catchers of people, to rescue people. And instead, here you are focusing all your attention on the church. And Simon Peter and the apostles would no doubt respond and say, yes, but it's through the church that we carry out Christ's commission. Because properly understood, biblically speaking, we don't have mission and mission agencies over here and the church over here and never the twain shall meet. No, properly understood, biblically speaking, mission takes place in and through the church. God's chosen vehicle for his mission in the world is the church. Well, what does that mean for us? You know, it means that when we find ourselves fired up and enthusiastic and challenged and convicted about mission, the right place for us to challenge, uh, for us to channel and nurture our enthusiasm is in and through the church. And so if you find yourself with a desire to be a part of this mission in a more direct way, then the place for you to explore that calling is in and through the church. Speak to your pastor, to your elders, pray with fellow believers in the church. Uh, but maybe that's not you because that is in reality a small number of people. If you're assured that you're in the right place, that uh, the Lord has called you to do the work, to do whatever it is that you're doing at the moment in the home, uh, in the workplace, then even so the way for you to engage in mission is also in and through the church. You need to pray for the church, give to the church. You need to pray for wisdom for the church as it makes decisions on how to use the finances and the gifts that the Lord has given to his church. And you need to take an active role in these things. You see, the apostles didn't conceive of themselves as fishers of men outside of or apart from the church. And neither can we. And the second thing we need to note about the nature of this mission that's given to Simon Peter and the other apostles is that there is a change of dynamic taking place here. It wasn't the case that prior to this moment, God's people were without a mission. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's people were very much a commissioned people. They did have a mission. They were to be an exemplary nation to the nations around them. They were to be a light to the nations. And the nations were to look at Israel and be drawn to Israel's God. Israel's faithful worship of God was to gather 
others into God's kingdom. And so we might say then that God's people in the Old Testament were to gather the nations by themselves being an attractive nation. That was their mission. And so the difference that we find here in the commissioning of Simon Peter and the apostles is that the mission for God's people is no longer to remain and draw in, but it is to go out and to gather. Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching people. That is to say, from now on, you'll be going out and gathering and rescuing. Theologians who study the subject of mission sometimes refer to this difference in dynamic by using two mechanical terms. And so they say in the Old Testament, the dynamic of mission was a, a century petal dynamic. It moves towards or around a center. Uh, the nations were to be drawn to Israel, drawn to the center. But in the New Testament, from now on, as Jesus says, the dynamic of mission is a centrifugal dynamic. God's people move out from the center to the nations. That is to say that the church is now to go out, to move out, to move towards the nations. We don't wait for the nations to come to us, but we go to the nations. And so Christianity is evangelistic. Uh, we don't merely wait for people to come to us and to start asking questions about the gospel as much as we pray that they might. But we go out to people with the gospel and we call on people to believe the gospel. Now, I think this is an important po point for us to note today in our Western society. Um, one of the things that we're seeing more and more uh, here in our society, uh, I'm sure you can recognize it, is that people who make absolute claims, people who say this is true and it's true regardless of how you feel about it. Those people are being held up as the enemy in our society. Those people are being dismissed as intolerant and narrow-minded people. Of course, there's, there's a lot of irony here, because even those who are saying it's wrong of you to impose your claims on the rest of us are doing the exact thing that they're accusing those people of doing. And, and you know, you might have heard the quip, if you're intolerant of intolerant people, you're intolerant. Um, but that being the atmosphere that we live in, to a degree, as Christians, we can begin to shrink back from going out with the gospel. If that's the reception that we're going to get, we might think, then let's just keep our heads down. Let's just stay in our Christian community and pray that people might come to us. It's a real temptation for us. But the dynamic of mission for God's people has changed. Christ has sent Simon Peter and the apostles out into the nations. He has sent his church out into the nations. He has commissioned us to go. Our mission is to go. And so we must keep going and calling people to worship God. We must keep going and planting churches in new neighborhoods. We must keep going and sending missionaries to unreached and scarcely reached people groups. So even in the face of hostility, that is the mission. Secondly, more briefly, how do we do it? 
how are we to go about this rescue mission, this gathering in of people into God's kingdom? Well, in one sense, specifics need to be left to each culture, each place to work out. We can't be overly prescriptive when it comes to models for reaching out with the gospel. Different models are more or less fitting from place to place and time to time. But the Bible does give us certain principles that ought to guide us in mission. And there's one principle that we see here in this passage. And it's this. Humility. Humility. As we go about the church's commission to reach out into the nations with the gospel, we are to do so with a humble view of ourselves. We see this mark of humility in Peter's response to Jesus after this miraculous catch of fish. You can picture the scene, can't you, after this has happened? They let down the nets. Before long, they're bulging with fish, almost bursting at the seams. Uh, They haul the nets into the boats. The boats can barely stay afloat under the weight of them. And then we read in verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I remember hearing the late uh, R.C. Sproul speaking on the holiness of Christ. And he referenced this passage and he imagined what might have entered Simon Peter's mind at this point. Simon Peter was running a fishing business with James and John. And here is this Jesus who is able to oversee huge hauls of fish being taken at will. Uh, He he might have thought to himself, Jesus, have we got a deal for you? Uh, We'll cut you in 25% of the profits if you come out fishing with us once a week. Uh, You can imagine it, can't you? You can imagine that he might have thrown his hands up in the air and said, oh, come on. We've been out here toiling all night and nothing. And this guy comes along and by some fluke finds all the fish in this one spot. But he doesn't respond in those ways. He responds by falling to his knees before Jesus. What was it that brought Peter to his knees? What was it that humbled him? Bible scholars who analyze Jesus' miracles debate whether this miraculous catch was a a miracle of willpower So did Jesus will that the fish would at that moment swim into the nets? Uh, Or was it a miracle of knowledge? Did Jesus miraculously know that the fish were there? And so he knew that if he was to tell these fishermen to lower their nets in that location, they'd bring in this huge catch. But what brought Peter to his knees wasn't the nature of the miracle he had just witnessed. What brought Peter to his knees was the nature of the person stood before him. Just as when Isaiah was faced with a transcendent Lord on his throne, he cried out, woe is me. Here, faced with the transcendent Lord in the boat, Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Luke is highlighting for us that this response from Peter is the right response to Jesus. In the same way that in earlier chapters in Luke, he'd held Mary out as an example to us in how to respond to the Lord. Here, his lens narrows on Peter. And Peter's there on his knees, aware of his sinfulness, 
when he's faced with who Jesus is. That is how each of us ought to respond to Jesus, Luke is showing us. And this humility, this humble posture, is to stay with us and to characterise us as we engage in the mission of the church, as we reach out with the gospel. And one Bible commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, writes, our culture is so bent on how well you can strut, not how quickly you can kneel. And that's true, isn't it? And yet here we are sharing in the commission of the disciples to be fishers of men, building on the foundation laid by the apostles. And we're to display the humility that we see here in Simon Peter as we do so. And, you know, I've said a little bit about this when I've been on previously, but I'm preparing to plant a, a church, a new church here in the UK, uh, really as part of this mission. <laughs> and when I've spoken to church planters and I've read people who've written on church planting, I've come across people speaking of a common mistake that church planters often make. Uh, people say that it's quite common for a church planter as he's preparing to plant the church to begin to think that what the world really needs is him. What the world really needs is his model of church, his particular emphases in ministry, his preaching, his knowledge, and so on. But friends, that attitude is not in line with the humility that we see here in Simon Peter. Uh, you might see it in evangelism too. A Christian is, is zealous to go and evangelize and perhaps to lead the church in the church's evangelism. Praise God for such zeal. But sometimes it can become misplaced. And the person begins to think that what the church really needs is to get on board with their ideas for evangelism. And what the community around the church really needs is their model for evangelism. And the humility that we see here in Simon Peter seems to be lacking. You know, I don't think that the city where I'm soon to plant a church, God willing, I don't think that that city needs me. But I do believe that that city needs the church. And that, that city needs the church to take seriously its mission to go and gather people in. And I believe that God has called me to do it. And if the church sends me to do it, then I must do it. But I must do it humbly on my knees before the Lord. You know, after all, that's what we're calling unbelievers to do in mission, isn't it? We're calling them to come and kneel before their maker. There's a horrible hypocrisy to us when we're calling others to bow the knee while standing proud ourselves. That's what mission is. That's how we do it. Thirdly, finally, really briefly, why is it why is it even possible? If the church's mission is to build on the foundation laid by the apostles and go and gather the nations into the church, and if the way that we're to do it is with humility and with a great sense of our dependence on Christ, how do we know that this mission is even possible? How can we do it? Well, there's one key feature of this passage that we've not looked at in great detail, and it's the word of Christ the word of Christ. Jesus is the one who initiates this event. After he's finished teaching the crowd, he says to Peter in verse four, 
put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus is the one who gets the ball rolling. And Simon's reply, however we understand his tone, is on the surface another exemplary response. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Uh, Luke records the account in such a way that after Peter says that, nobody else speaks until Peter is on his knees before Jesus. Jesus gives the word, Peter takes him at his word, and so unfolds this paradigm-shifting event that sets Peter on this trajectory to becoming one of Christ's appointed founders of the church. And all of this was made possible because Jesus spoke, and Peter took him at his word. How can we possibly engage in this mission? It's because Christ has spoken. When we feel our inadequacy for the task, when we're so aware of our own sinfulness and we're on our knees before Jesus, how is it even possible that we go out and seek to gather others in? It's because the word of Jesus comes to us as it did to Peter, and he says, do not be afraid. And what gracious words they are from Jesus. Here is Peter, and he's overwhelmed by his sinfulness. He can only ask Jesus to go away from his presence. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. It's as if he says to him, you're exactly the kind of guy I can work with. Someone who takes me at my word, someone who is aware of their own sinfulness, that I can work with. And aren't these the words that Jesus speaks? Aren't these the words of the gospel? When a person is broken under the weight and the guilt and the shame of their sinfulness, the word of God comes and it says, do not be afraid. Peace. We sang earlier, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down thy weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad. How is it that Jesus could speak these words of peace to Peter? It was because Jesus knew that he would soon set his face towards Jerusalem, as Luke puts it. And in Jerusalem, there would be a commissioning ceremony for Simon Peter and the apostles and for the church. The ceremony wouldn't be one where Simon Peter and the apostles would be called upon to make their vows. It wouldn't be one where Simon Peter and the apostles make a pledge of loyalty to Jesus and his mission. No, the commissioning ceremony would be one where Jesus himself would be the pledge for his people in his death and in his resurrection as he makes the vow, my life for yours, my death is to atone for your sinfulness and so do not be afraid. Take Jesus and his word and go and call others to do the same.